This is Here There Be Dragons. I'm your host, Jess Myers. Okay, you might notice that I have a bit of a deeper baritone in this episode. I have allergies, unfortunately, um, but maybe you'll like the voice better. So we'll proceed business as usual and see what happens. Okay, so last episode, we left off talking about Grand Paris, the plan to breach the urban borders of the city and unite Paris with its surrounding banlieue through huge infrastructure projects. So it will come as no surprise to you that Paris, a city that is roughly 2,000 years old, has had many, many, many plans for urban utopias. Utopias of morality, of technology, of health, and many more. Plans for the aristocracy, for the poor, for police, for immigrants, and on and on and on. It's impossible to walk the city streets and not be neck deep in the fragments of ideal cities dreamed up by emperors, artists, bureaucrats, environmentalists, and most importantly, citizens. Often, utopias are designed to be ideal living spaces for residents. But one person's utopia could be another person's nightmare, depending on who you talk to. What is a laborer's place in a bourgeois utopia, or an immigrant's place in a nationalist? Do utopian plans actually create more democratic spaces in the city? In this episode, we'll be diving into the utopias scattered throughout Paris in the 20th century. Who were they built for? And who were they built to keep out? Post-war France was a rapidly modernizing place. Towns throughout France went from wartime rations to electricity and washing machines in the blink of an eye, swiftly replacing traditional lifestyles with modern ones. The 60s through the 80s saw a huge amount of government-supported projects from infrastructure to the city's first skyscraper, the Tour Montparnasse. This was also the time when the infamous Peripherique from episode 6 was built, the 22-mile-long highway that separates Paris from its banlieue. It was first built to offer access to the city by cars being minted in Renault and Citroën's factories right at the edge of the city. Growing up in a nearby banlieue, Françoise remembers the impact these projects had on her childhood. Alors, je m'appelle Françoise Fromoneau. J'ai 58 ans. Je suis architecte et professeur d'architecture et critique. Et j'ai grandi euh, en banlieue parisienne, en banlieue proche de Paris, Châtillon. Dans les années 60, il y avait eu tout un projet euh, d'autoroute. Euh, In the 1960s, there was a project to build a highway. It was part of Pompidou's great projects for Paris. So they had expropriated a lot of land to build the highway, which in the end was never built. So there were wastelands, and we loved playing there. They were spaces of incredible freedom, abandoned spaces, spaces of transgression. We jumped the fences and played in the grass, in the ruins. It was extraordinary. I remember those spaces very well. After the difficulty of Nazi occupation during World War II, President Pompidou's post-war administration wanted Paris to be a symbol of modernity, showing the world that France's hard times were in its past. Like his imperial predecessor Napoleon, think Haussmann's famous boulevards, 
President Pompidou chose enormous infrastructure projects as a means of modernizing Paris. These projects included a modern art museum, the Centre Pompidou, the city's first skyscraper, the Tour de Montparnasse, and of course, the expressway, an altar to the automobile, the peripherique. Here's Françoise. These were the projects of the 60s in Paris and in the banlieue. We went from a traditional historical urban fabric to something that was new and it is now associated with important social problems, with poor or immigrant populations. There's an association between these places and the sense of a radical break, which was both social and physical. Many people associate that break with a sort of insecurity because it was a break with things that in one way or another were perceived as a continuum, even though that's not necessarily an accurate historical representation. This rapid slingshot into the future left some residents at the mercy of Pompidou's vision of a modern city. As Jean-Claude explains, some residents were not seen as being part of that vision. In the 70s and 80s, there was a really important series of political measures, which we called urban renovation back then. The working class was expelled from the center of Paris, from the city of Paris itself, in the name of transforming neighborhoods. The 13th, 14th, and 15th arrondissements were almost entirely torn down during the 50s, 60s, and 70s in order to replace them with more modern urban planning. Those were popular areas. That was where the working class was. These workers were sent to the Grands Ensembles and social housing projects built by Paris Habitat in the banlieue. None of this happens anymore. But back in the day, sociologists said the working class was being deported to the banlieue. The word deportation was thick with meaning at the time. Deportation meant stripping away a home, for some, the only one they had ever known. Deporting the working class from Paris was a rallying cry for workers being removed from homes that some had been in for generations. So as bright as Pompidou's vision seemed, it didn't come without pushback. For example, when the Tour de Montparnasse was completed, the building was so widely hated that skyscrapers have been exiled to the city's periphery ever since. This zoning policy paved the way for constructions like La Défense, the Parisian business district on the city's western limit. Its construction cleared away wartime shantytowns, farmlands, and old factories to make room for a new kind of business. It was built as a means of competing with New York, London, and Tokyo as a major global financial center. Although many criticized the gaggle of skyscrapers as being so generic that they could be anywhere in the world— La Défense was playfully mocked by filmmakers like Jacques Tati for its obvious global striving. However, the idea of a district where no one lived, that was completely abandoned after working hours, made some feel insecure there. As a teenager, Alice was told to stay away from La Défense, but it became this thrilling yet terrifying playground for her and her friends. I remember one time, one of my friend's mothers was really angry because we'd gone to La Défense without telling her. It must have been at the beginning of the 90s. In 1990, I was 14. We'd gone to La Défense when it starts to be dodgy. Back then, it was kind of sketchy. There were high-rises, tunnels, and dark places at night. I don't know if you've seen this movie called Air Versible by Gaspard Noé. 
In a nutshell, it's a horrible movie where a woman gets raped in a tunnel below the street. You can meet the wrong kind of person, and here's no way out. You might not be able to call someone for help because there's no one. You're kind of trapped. There's this place underground, and then there's the La Défense Square, where no one lives. It's only offices, and it's only people working there. And so there's no one to hear from their windows. It's very dehumanized, especially at night. Those high-rises are faceless. There's no balcony. The windows are often opaque. You can't see what goes on inside. You don't see people. That's why it gives me this impression of being dehumanized. For Alice, La Défense was both attractive in all its newness and worrying for how impersonal and empty it becomes. It's so different from the Paris that she knew as a kid. For Franck, who moved to Paris to work in La Défense, the area really improved, but the rumors of its past still influenced the way he felt about it. I didn't have any negative apprehension about La Défense and safety there. But when I started working there, it's true that at night, when you get back on the subway or the RER, it's absolutely empty. You can end up alone on a train platform with quote-unquote gangs. And of course, I've been told about the gang wars in the square in front of La Défense. But that was almost 20 years ago. Now it's nowhere near that, and I've been alone in the metro with gangs of pretty tough young men, and they'd shout at me. It's true that I never felt very comfortable. I have co-workers who are women, and they're very afraid. Well, at least they feel unsafe after 8 or 9 o'clock at night. La Défense isn't the only district marked by its past and its rapid modernization. One grand utopian vision that I heard about over and over again in my interviews has been an infamous district in Paris since the 12th century. Once a centuries-old municipal market, Le Ventre de Paris, the stomach of Paris, located in the heart of the city, the market of Léal was removed to the southern banlieue, Rangis, what was left of Léal Châtelet was redeveloped into a mall and transit hub in the 60s. Ever since, the central district, called Beaubourg, has been a lightning rod for utopian dreams in the city. I never knew the real Léal. I mean the atmosphere, the heart of Paris. It was unlivable because there were kilometers of trucks parking or driving in the streets at 3 a.m. Things had to change. They moved it all to Rongy. I saw the end of Léal. There were still the meat market, the flower market. I saw a bit of what it must have looked like, and it was really nice. There were those beautiful buildings built by Baltar. The iron architecture was beautiful, and I think the people of Paris wanted to keep them. It was squatted by art collectives for one or two years, by real artists without any money, by theater companies, dance companies, by squatters. The idea was to keep the building. We fought to keep Léal. There were terrible fights with the police. I was 19 or 20. One evening there was a huge party. All the owners of the bistros nearby were giving out free drinks. They took the tables out onto the street and put some barrels of wine or beer on them. There were dozens and dozens, maybe even hundreds of thousands of people who were there in the streets, participating in a protest saying, Leal is ours, you will not tear it down. It was a huge popular protest to save Leal, and it was all useless. Leal was destroyed to build this underground mall, this horror. And so obviously, the physiognomy of what the area was, was completely changed. It became a place for consumption, not really a place where people live. 
In a way, like La Défense, Léal was really a living working space, a network in the center of the city where all kinds of people ended up mingling together. It was destroyed for the sake of the modern city. Now Léal is an underground space, four stories deep, with global brands that you might know, like H&M, Zara, McDonald's, and more. Here's Bernard. People from the banlieue don't know Léal. They only come for the underground mall. Sometimes they don't even go outside. There are four stupid floors with stupid stores that are packed on top of one another, and millions of people from the banlieue coming there, packs of young people just hanging around in there, like they would hang around a mall in the banlieue, probably not even going out in the area. They wander around the stores because they're like mosquitoes attracted to the light of consumption. When you talked with the young people from the popular areas, to them Paris means to be bourgeois. Today, Léal is mostly a flow of people, and it's below ground, which changes everything. Back when it was a market, it was unsafe. It was a very popular neighborhood, with bad boys, prostitution, illegal trafficking, and a lot of rats. It was pretty dirty, not heaven by any stretch of the imagination. It was a real working space, with all that that entails. It was completely eradicated during the great transformations of the 60s and 70s. Since then, new insecurities have developed. You wouldn't go there at night because there were people hidden in the bushes who wanted your wallet. When they built the Centre Pompidou, they destroyed some streets that were very old-fashioned, and they rebuilt other things. Now you have this beautiful square. It's a good thing. I mean, you like it or you don't, but it was the first modern museum in Paris. And of course there were people yelling that it was horrid, but it was current, and now everyone thinks it's great. If you take the escalator all the way up, it really is remarkable. If the weather is nice, you can see all of Paris. There's history behind all of this. There's life for hundreds of years. When the market houses of Léal were destroyed, the identity of the neighborhood Beaubourg radically shifted. It shifted from a neighborhood where the working class and the well-to-do were often at each other's elbows to a commercial and cultural hub flowing with tourists headed to the Centre Pompidou, as Jacqueline just mentioned, another contentious construction, or the four stories deep underground mall and transit hub. Léal Châtelet connects four subway lines, three commuter rails, and moves over half a million commuters on any given weekday. For some, this meant a long-awaited connection between the center city and the banlieue. But for others, like Evelyne, it meant that the heart of Paris was clogged and congested, welcoming the wrong kinds of people to a once-historic district. Les Halles-Châtelet, c'est quand même la station parisienne qui est la plus grande. Les Halles-Châtelet. 
It's the biggest train station. I think it's even one of the biggest stations in the world because there are so many connections at Léal. And this station is so dense with people moving everywhere. They still haven't finished the renovation work, but it's still very gloomy and it isn't really pretty. So everybody avoids it. People in Paris walk very fast and it's always very crowded, so you need to know where you want to go when you're in Léal. Yeah, it's sketchy because it's overcrowded. There are people who stay there all day, maybe, and it smells bad, too. The platforms are very old and there haven't been any renovations. It's one of the dirtiest stations. No one's ever liked Châtelet. I think it's a place where there's a lot of traffic, so lots of people come from the Banlieu who take the RER. It's where everyone who lives in the Banlieu come to hang out. So there's always a crowd, always a lot of people, whether it's inside or outside. And you can't feel safe, even if there are police. It's true that I have a special relationship with Real because I got my purse stolen there. It's the first and only time I've had something stolen in Paris, and it was in Real. For Aurélie, her discomfort with Real comes from a bad experience. But some Parisians are primed to fear Real Châtelet before ever setting foot there. From a young age, Danya's mom told her to avoid it. I just remember her saying like, oh, don't go to Léal, and it was like a thing that Léal was sketchy, but then I went when I was like older, and it's, it's like fine. <laughs> I think there's a lot of, um, I don't know the word, I mean, in French we call it like a racaille. It's like people who kind of try to pickpocket you or like try to like talk to you. You know, it's like not the, it's like a little bit of sketchy. I don't really know how to explain for many Parisians, Léal Châtelet is a place to avoid. Crowded and dirty with Rakai, which you might remember from episode 5 as meaning thug. Someone who people imagine might pickpocket tourists and commuters. You can compare Léal to Times Square for New Yorkers. It's that place that you just don't go. But many people from the banlieue, especially teenagers, saw it as their first foray into Paris proper. Since so many RER, the banlieue commuter trains, passed through Léal Châtelet. For Eric and Steffi, the new Léal did something similar to the old one, made a vibrant space where you could meet just about anyone. Alors Léal, Léal, moi j'ai connu dans les années euh, 80, donc quand, quand il avait été refait, Léal, I knew the area in the 80s when it was renovated. It was a very, very modern place with all kinds of different stores behind the glass wall, especially with the FNAC, which was a huge cultural center. All the CDs that came out were there, so it attracted musicians, young people, and the whole area around Léal was very, very trendy, with, very, with small bars like Le Père Tranquille, Le Père Futard, and there were models and photographers who would come there to have drinks and network. There was this famous place called Le Bon Douche, and so all that made the area one of the trendiest and busiest in Paris. Then what happened? I can't tell you. Maybe it was a victim of its own success. The RER made the area very accessible. It made it too popular. People notice when there are too many stores, it really kills the place. So the place became a little has-been. Trendy people left the area. And I don't go there anymore. Thankfully, it was saved because Etienne Marcel is not far and it's authentic. Maybe it's those places that will save Léal. In fact, maybe the older neighborhood will save the modern one. 
le quartier moderne. Il y a pas mal de banlieusards qui se retrouvent à Châtelet. There's a lot of people from the Banlieues who meet up at Châtelet. Since I'm from the Banlieues, I think that a lot of people don't want to admit it, but they see people from the Banlieues as a danger. I don't really know why. I just see people from the Banlieues as people who are profoundly bored. They're bored and they're stuck. They have very little freedom. The only freedom when you live on the RER A or D is to go to Châtelet. There, you can buy a pair of tennis shoes, you can dance hip-hop, you can meet people from everywhere. Okay, there are people who get into trouble, but really, what people want is to escape the reality of their lives in the Banlieue because nothing really happens there. Since Léal Châtelet is a very central district in Paris, its design takes on a symbolic importance. It signals to residents and tourists alike how Paris is modernizing and how it's keeping up as a global city. This symbolism made Léal Châtelet very important to City Hall, which is just a stone's throw away and changing as rapidly as the city itself. Paris had eliminated the position of mayor in the mid-19th century, but reinstated it in the 70s. For the first mayor, Jacques Chirac, who would later move on to the presidency, the redesign of the center city was also a litmus test for the mayor's office. Léal Châtelet has remained a gambit for City Hall ever since. In 2002, then-mayor Bertrand Delano organized an international contest for the redesign of Léal. Famous architects like Jean Nouvel and Rem Koolhaas submitted proposals, but a local team of architects won with a proposal to open the underground mall area up to the central district of Paris. For Leopold and Jennifer, the proposals still missed the true strength of Léal Châtelet. I think the, the four uh, propositions that had been selected were all unanimously uh, bearing the signs of these sort of aesthetics of the, of the shopping malls as we know it, and not, very, not really um, uh, seeing Léal for what it is, which is this incredible note where all residents of Paris, as uh, understood as a metropolitan area, collide and, and, and meet. So um, I think the, the results that was uh, opened uh, a few months ago is very much uh, the result of this sort of favor for towards um, um, the brands that, were, that wanted to open again uh, at this location rather than, rather than the, the potential encounters of people. Parce que Châtelet euh, représentait euh, pour moi euh, et mes amis qui étions For my friends and I who lived in the Banlieue, Châtelet in Paris represented a way to get out of what we knew without going too far. So for our parents, it was the only place that was close enough so that we could go out on our own. And at the same time for us, it was already good enough because it was Paris. What drew me to Châtelet for a very long time was a very cosmopolitan aspect, not only in terms of where people came from, and what they look like. It seemed to me like a place where anyone could meet, as a platform to go from one place to another. So a lot of people who might live in the Marais, who might live in Etienne Marcel, or who live in the Banlieu, might have to go through the Châtelet to get somewhere else. I like that very universal aspect. You could see a man in a suit leaving work, people hanging out who come from the 9-5, but also young Parisians going out for a drink. To me, Châtelet is really that, and I think people only realized this recently with the renovation, now that it's become more presentable. But when I was younger, I already saw this potential. 
You could go shopping, you could have a drink, you could go to the museum, and you'd have to go through there to get from one place to another. Ever since Leal Châtelet first opened as a commercial center, there was always a debate about who should be there. In the 70s and 80s, teenagers from different subcultures would hang out there, skinheads, punks, goths, as well as black and brown teens from the banlieue. This, along with suspected drug trafficking in the area, led City Hall to try and reshape and reimagine Leal Châtelet. As the new proposal for Leal finally opens, is the utopian ideal for Leal Châtelet meant to make the area more welcoming or remove unwanted people? Here's Françoise. It was fantasy for Parisians to say things like, we don't go to Léal because it's a place where there's drug trafficking. It's a dangerous place. It's a place where there are people from the banlieue. Little thugs and homeless people go there. It's a slum in the heart of Paris. One of the priorities with the new redevelopment was to upgrade to bring stores above ground so that the mall would emerge and to keep the area under surveillance. Also, to make the stores a lot more chic in order to attract wealthier people. Safety is good for business. That's a very important aspect of redeveloping Léal, in my opinion. In Léal, the border isn't horizontal, it's vertical, above and below. Speaking as an architect, that means the ground in the city is artificial. It's no longer real ground, but the roof of the mall below. And the border is really between the underground hub and the rest of Paris. Utopias carry in their plans inherent borders and inherent outcasts. As much as they wish to control the environment, in the end, the ultimate goal is to control residents in some way or another whether that control is viewed as positive or not. Utopias are designed in the hope that they will encourage certain behaviors and dispel others. But as all the utopias to have ever dreamed their way into Paris have come to learn, in the end, the people will out. Although the destruction of Leal the marketplace may have deported one group of low-income people, a new class still took their place, claiming a space in the city for themselves. As with any city, a huge part of making it your own, and so making it a place of safety, is by claiming space. In the last episode of the series, we'll talk about how residents are doing just that, reshaping the city to their own will. Thanks for listening. This has been Here There Be Dragons. I'm your host, Jess Myers. I'd like to say a special thank you to my sponsors at MIT Council for the Arts who made this season possible. Also a huge thank you, as usual, to my producer, Adelie Pajman-Ponte, and to Corey Lee Jacobs for composing original music. This is the second to last episode of the series. If you have a comment or question, we want to hear from you. If you have a recorder on your phone, or just a recorder in general, record your message for us to play on the last episode. Email that to us at htbdpodcast at gmail.com. That's one word, htbdpodcast at gmail.com. 
Also, be sure to subscribe to us and rate us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher, and really wherever podcasts are found, because that really helps us out. Check out more HTBD on our website, htbdpodcast.com, and follow us on Twitter at dragons underscore podcast. Thanks, and join us next time for more stories of fear, identity, and urban life.